Welcome to Techplomacy Talk. My name is Kasper Klynge. I'm the Danish Tech Ambassador. We're sitting in Washington, D.C., and I'm sitting across somebody who's very knowledgeable about a topic we're going to dive into today about autonomous weapon systems. And we have Paul Charest, who is the Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program at CNAS and also a former Army Ranger. So, Paul, thanks for taking time to be on the show today. Thanks for having me. I think our aim is to be a little bit more nerdy than we are normally, uh, normally are, and to, to get a better understanding of how technology is also transforming uh, traditional warfare, how you know the military-industrial complex is being at least challenged in some ways by new players, but also what role this will have on, on the battlefield. But why don't we begin with the easy question? So what is an autonomous weapon system? Yeah, sounds great. Well, <laughs> let's let's dive right in. You know, in concept, an autonomous weapon system is very simple. It's the idea that instead of people choosing what targets to attack on the battlefield, a machine is now making that decision. Now, where things get tricky is when you start looking in practice at the technology, it's not always that clear cut of a line. Because of course, technology evolves incrementally with one innovation layer on top of another one. So I want to make an analogy to self-driving cars, something that people have a lot more familiarity with. So if you think about the idea of a self-driving car, it's very simple, right? The car drives itself instead of a person doing it. Now, when you start to look at what companies are actually putting on the roads, In fact, we're seeing, we're getting towards self-driving cars step by step. If you buy a top-of-the-line automobile today, you have features like intelligent cruise control, self-parking, automatic braking. These are automation in very specific aspects of driving. And of course, we've always had things that have some degree of automation, some more rudimentary cruise control, things like analog brakes that use a little bit of automation in a very particular way. And we're seeing more cutting edge types of automation today, like the Tesla autopilot that are starting to push the boundaries. So this is, there's a very similar phenomenon going on in the military where we have had lots of automation for decades, dating back to World War II, to homing torpedoes and missiles that could zoom in on their targets that are moving on the battlefield, to automated defensive systems today that are used to defend ships and land bases and ground vehicles, for situations where there's so many incoming threats that they can't, a human can't possibly respond in time. And those are used by at least 30 countries around the globe today to all sorts of ways where you see militaries incorporating more autonomy in missiles and next generation robotic systems going forward. And so this, there's sort of this abstract idea of an autonomous weapon that's choosing its own targets that you know is easy to hold up as an archetype But then when you peel apart the specific details of what people are doing, it's really, it's a spectrum towards greater autonomy over time. But what you're saying is basically, we're not we're not in front of a revolution. It's it's an evolution, basically, where you gradually have more and more advanced weapon systems. But why is it different right now? Why, why do you have the role that you currently have? And why do we see other academics, uh, other governments beginning to get more interest in this topic today? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can you can move down this path step by step. And even if each step is very evolutionary, you can nevertheless reach a point at the end that's very different than where you started from. Um, and certainly, 
self-driving cars, that's the case, right? That there's a goal of someday having these cars that drive themselves, that, you know, save tens of thousands of lives on the road. Um, and I think in the military space, there's such a profound debate about autonomous weapons, because even though the things that people are building today are not really that consequential, they're pretty incremental advances, we can look at where we're headed and see that further down the line, there are some very profound questions about the role of humans in warfare. And that's, that's kind of what's challenging. And you really, it's worth asking and saying, well, you know, as we're taking these steps, where are we going and where do we want to go? Mm. And are we headed in the right direction? Mm. Does it exist today? Do we have autonomous weapon systems uh, here in, in late 2019? Well, and this is this is the tricky thing is, you know, in, in a technical sense, there are some things that, yeah, do cross that line. Um, but they're things that we've had for decades and they haven't been particularly problematic. So the there are at least 30 countries around the globe today that have these supervised autonomous weapons that are used in very limited defensive settings to defend ships or ground vehicles or land bases from air and missile and rocket attack. When the speed of threats could just overwhelm people's ability to respond, and most of the times these automated defensive systems are used with people in the loop. But they have fully automatic modes where if you need to, you could you could turn it on and um, it can the, the computer, the weapon system could automatically defend the ship or the vehicle. And in some cases, you need this. Um, there are a number of countries that have uh, a type of weapon system, a defensive system called active protection systems for ground vehicles. So this basically, if there's an anti-tank missile or RPG coming in to hit a ground vehicle, um, this will shoot out um, a countermeasure to disable that, to blow it up. There's just no time for a human to do that. It's just physically impossible for a human to be reacting that quickly. And so you need machines to do that. And so we do have some examples of this kind of automation in a limited setting. Um, and that's what makes this kind of tricky because it's not actually as clear of a black and white line as we might like to think it is. And the real question is what happens if the domain in which we're using these starts to expand over time? And where might we be comfortable with that? And where are we not comfortable with it? One of the reasons I have the job that I have, and I assume also you have the job that you have, is because of the revolution in computational capacity, but of specifically, of course, machine learning and AI. Is that the game changer that is sort of making these weapon systems, and let's not go into the degree of autonomy, but that's what makes this possible and why we are in front of something that will dramatically potentially change uh, the battleground? I think it's it's possible. Um, certainly what we have seen is in the past seven years, you know, this huge explosion in deep learning that's now sparked this new AI revolution. Now, we have yet to see deep learning technology really filter back into militaries because the the current machine learning revolution is really being driven by the commercial tech sector. And militaries, I think, around the globe are struggling to find ways to import this technology And then to use it in a way that's constructive, because of course machine learning today is, is powerful, but has many limitations and, and many problems. You know, if the data set's you know, a little bit off, it can you know, have really poor performance. Uh, there are big reliability and security problems. So I think you see people struggling to figure out how do I use machine learning in a valuable way in military settings. 
And there are going to be some applications for sure. Uh, but it's hard to know yet exactly what those are. The thing that is potentially a game changer for autonomous weapons is that one big limitation for a long time has been um, automatic target recognition systems, or what the military calls ATR. And this would be the ability of an algorithm to look at sensor data and then automatically interpret that there's a, a tank or a ship or a, a radar site um, all by itself instead of a human looking at a screen and making that determination. Well, military ATR has historically done terribly. Just like prior to the deep learning revolution, machines just didn't do very well at object classification. Well, that's one of the things that we now know machines do very, very well mm. using deep learning. Now, the trick is you need a lot of data. You need these huge data sets like ImageNet that have millions of images that can be then fed into these neural networks. And so I think, you know, for militaries, that's going to be a real problem is where do you get that data set from? Right? If you go to your adversary and say, well, I'd like to have, you know, a million images of your tanks from all these different angles and lighting conditions, they're probably not going to make it easy for you. Um, and, in you know, militaries really work hard to, to make it hard for their adversaries to have good information on their weapon systems and particularly technical details. So, you know, it's one thing if you know that, you know, a, a new type of tank exists or a new type of missile launcher, maybe because, uh, you know, uh, another country does a military parade and they demonstrate it, right? But then to We've get to the... We've seen a few of those. Yeah, we, also see, lately. we see, those, see those around the globe, you know, from time to time. So, um, but getting to the place where you have sort of the high fidelity data that you need for multiple angles and lighting conditions and under, you know, obfuscation, if there's camouflage, if there's, you know, trees and foliage in the way and netting, the types of things that militaries will actually do, that's going to be a bigger lift. And so I think it, it remains to be seen um, what applying this kind of machine learning technology to a military setting and autonomous weapons really looks like, mm. how hard that is to do. And of course, those are complicated issues, but that's exactly where the AI revolution might have a big impact, including this area. Paul, talk us through what you think might be a likely scenario in the next couple of years. Where are we going to see these autonomous weapon systems? Is it primarily going to be for defensive reasons, or could you also see it for offensive uh, operations uh, uh, around the world? Well, what's a likely scenario? If you can be quite specific so our audience yes. understands what we're talking about almost in a physical way. Right, right. So let me try to paint a picture. So first of all, everybody already has drones. Um, there are over 100 countries and non-state groups that have drones today. And uh, that ship has sailed. And, and really, armed drones are proliferating very rapidly as well. There are at least 20 countries that have or are in the process of acquiring armed drones. China is the leading global proliferator of armed drones. Over 90% of international armed drone transfers come from China. Um, and so we've already seen this technology become very, very widely used and very rapidly. The real decision point for militaries when it comes to autonomy is when we start to see these drones used in more, um, what the military might call a high-end conflict setting against a more sophisticated adversary that's capable of jamming communications. So if you have a drone today, they're largely remote controlled. There's a person on the other end of this drone flying it and piloting it. Mm. Uh, the drone's not really doing anything itself. Well, that's probably preferred, actually. Um, and you might see militaries incorporating more automation to make that control easier. 
So you're controlling it with a, a keyboard and a mouse instead of flying a joystick. Um, but still, if you can have people involved, it's pretty much always better to have a human there, at least supervising the operation. Mm. Now, the trick is going to be if you're fighting in more advanced military that can then jam that communications link. Because military communications links are still quite vulnerable to electronic warfare and to jamming. And then you have to really make a decision about what do you want this drone or other robotic vehicle. Could be a robotic ground vehicle or uh, a maritime vehicle on the sea surface or undersea. What do you want it to do once it's out on its own? And this really simple question is, I think, going to be the decision point for militaries in the next 10 to 15 years mm. as they field these things. Because they have to put in some kind of programming. Mm. They have to write a line of code. You know, If no communications, then what? Mm. And the answer could be that it comes home, that it flies around and takes pictures and just does reconnaissance. The answer could be that you allow the robot to strike pre-planned fixed targets that humans approved, which is basically what a cruise missile today does. That's not that's not a big shift in military operations. Almost sort of a fire and forget, just using a different weapons platform. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think the real the thing that would be new is if military said, well, we're going to allow it to strike um, what the military might call targets of opportunity, so mobile targets. Uh, we've seen more militaries and non-state groups um, shift to more mobile and relocatable targets, whether it's you know, individual insurgents constantly staying on the move to avoid mm -hmm. targeting, or even for advanced militaries, things like mobile air defense systems, mobile missile launchers. And you can think of some settings where you might really want to actually hand over authority to the robot to strike these targets. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're going after... Uh, North Korean mobile missile launchers. Well, like, wow, I really don't want to just say, ah, you know, I don't care about those targets, right? In any setting where you'd want to strike them, you really want to strike them. And, um, and, and, and that's a pretty high-priority target that could save millions of lives, actually, mm. by taking out uh, a North Korean uh, nuclear-tipped missile launcher. Mm. But Paul, sorry to interrupt you, just in, in your book, uh, Army of None, which is, by the way, extremely recommendable, um, you make a distinction between, I think, three different kinds of autonomies. You sort of supervision by human beings, delegation, and then fully autonomous uh, weapon systems. I mean, could that apply both for land, sea, air-based uh, systems? Or uh, perhaps you can can guide us a little bit through that distinction. That's right. Yeah, so, so um, we certainly have today in wide use around the globe what I would call a semi-autonomous weapon that uses some automation in different different ways, but the human still chooses the target. So the human says there's a ship or a tank or a, a radar installation here, and then lets the missile go. And many of these are fire and forget weapons. You're not gonna get it back. That's not a particularly new development in war. Uh, you can't recall an arrow once it's launched. Um, what is different is in the 20th century, these munitions, gained the ability to have sensors on board so they could sense a target and maneuver to hit moving targets. Now, this started at first in World War II with the ability of torpedoes to listen to the sound of a ship's propeller to hit ships which were moving, of course, on the water. And these are now widely used by militaries around the globe today, but people are still choosing the target. People say, well, there's an enemy target in this point in time and space, and I'm going to launch this missile to go take it out. 
We also see lots of human-supervised autonomous weapons used in defensive settings where, you know, there's just no time for people to respond so they can turn it to this full auto mode, but the people are still there supervising its operation. And if they needed to, they could jump in and turn it off. Now, they might not do it before there was an accident. They might not realize something was wrong until there was an accident, but they could jump in before things got really out of hand. What's new is this idea of what you might call a fully autonomous weapon, something that would go out on its own and search over a wide area for targets and then find them and then attack them without any further human permission. Doesn't radio back, doesn't ask, just just does it. You see some narrow examples like this. Uh, the Israeli Harpy drone is, you know, is a weapon system that does meet this criteria. It hunts enemy radars. It can fly a search pattern for up to two and a half hours. And when it finds a radar, it can just attack it all on its own. And it's been sold to a couple countries, to India, South Korea, uh, Turkey, and China. And perhaps not surprisingly, uh, the Chinese are reported to have reverse engineered their own version of this. Um, but we haven't, by and large, seen a lot of weapon systems like this that go and search for their own targets and attack them yet. Mm. But I think, you know, the path is that we are likely to see these um, at least incrementally introduced into military operations over the next couple decades. Mm. So the Israeli system, I think you also mentioned that in your book, that's the one that gets closest to full autonomy as of today. Uh, you also talk about sort of swarms of drones yes. that could be used for defensive reasons. So if you have a traditional fighter airplane coming into uh, over territory, you can send up a swarm of drones and, and they would not necessarily be uh, aggressive weapons in their own, but by hitting uh, the incoming plane that would, would take it out of the sky literally. Are we going to see that, or, or does that exist already today as well? Yeah. So swarms is one of these buzzwords like AI or quantum that people <laughs> throw around like it's just magic, right? So let's let's deconstruct. But you this. also used it in your book. <laughs> I love the well. Swarming is really fascinating, but let's deconstruct what we mean when we say Perfect. swarming, right? So swarming is really about cooperative autonomy. So instead of there being one autonomous system out there on its own. It's a whole group of them working together as a team. And so instead of, you know, one person trying to control these vehicles individually and tell them each where to go, pretty soon that's, that's just not going to work. And so you want the ability of the, the group of robotic systems to coordinate all on their own. Um, so you can think about, um, uh, you know, in, in American terms, a soccer team or, or a Danish terms, a football team right out there uh, on the field. And you can't have the coach from the sidelines telling the players what to do. That would be that'd be crazy. Although they try all the time. <laughs> <laughs> But that's not going to work, right? So, so instead, the players have to coordinate on their own what to do on the field. Um, and similarly, a swarm is about... Now removing from one step the human control, and the human is interfacing with the group as a whole, telling the swarm to go conduct some task, and then the swarm on its own organizes itself for how to best conduct that task. Now that task could be uh, a combat-related task, could be you know an offensive or defensive task, it could be logistics, ferrying supplies to troops, it could be creating a mobile communications network that best manages bandwidth, could be conducting reconnaissance. It could be, you know, warehouse robots moving supplies around in a warehouse. It mm. um, doesn't need to be in a military context. But it's really this idea of cooperative autonomy, and it's a big game changer for how we think about using robots in the future.
one of the one of the reasons why these systems are able to operate is of course because of new software um, and uh, my question I think I'll ask it quite directly and not allude to it is of course does that change uh, you know the, the producers or the companies that are involved now in, in military affairs in the old days you would go to Lockheed Martin you might go to Northrop Grumman do you need today also to go to you know the Googles or the Microsofts of this world or Alibaba, Tencent, if we look towards China? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely a factor. Now, I don't think it's just because um, it's software, because, of course, you know, if you look at a purely military system like an F-35, it's got a lot of code in there. Um, part of it is that the locus of innovation has shifted from government-funded research more to the private sector. Mm. So at least in the U.S., you know, back in the 1960s, about two-thirds of um, research and development in the United States was funded by the federal government and one-third by the private sector. And now that's flipped. And so now we're in an area where instead of a lot of innovation spinning out of the public sector um, and innovations like you know the global positioning system and the origins of the internet and microprocessors all came out of government-funded research, now the opposite is happening. Mm where for AI and machine learning, the real locus of innovation is in the private sector. It's at Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Amazon. And so, you know, for the military, if you want to grab a hold of a lot of this technology, they have to go reach out to these sort of non-traditional, um, they're not defense companies, they're tech companies. Yeah. And that's been a real challenge we see for the United States. There's been you know, certainly some some friction, some noise in the system, if you will, from um, tech employees objecting to working with the military. Uh, that was obviously uh, a factor for Google discontinuing work in Project Maven. Yeah. I don't know how big we've seen that be really a factor more broadly. Um, I think we've seen, you know, some letters and protests from other companies but by and large, most of these big tech firms have stood up and said that they do want to work with the U.S. government. The bigger problem has been the red tape that the government has in place. Yeah. I mean, I think you see this most prominently on display with the Jedi cloud computing contract, mm. where DOD, you know, and has for several years... It was awarded to Microsoft. Perhaps you should add that here. Right. So yeah. it was recently awarded to Microsoft. And so for, for several years now, DOD has been trying to get underway on this big $10 billion cloud computing contract. And... Um, you know, people want to be involved in it. $10 billion is a lot of money, <laughs> you know, so... Even for big tech companies. <laughs> even for big tech companies. You know, that, that's, that'll get your attention. Uh, that, that, that B does get people's attention there. So the problem has been that at every step along the way, we've seen protests from companies um, that, that kind of throw, throw a wrench in the works. And that's been a real hurdle for the government. And so when we can't even get cloud computing underway... That's a real obstacle for the government to moving out with, um, with things like machine learning because they can't even put the basic infrastructure in place. But it's not for these cultural reasons. It's for really more um, uh, mundane but really critical uh, bureaucratic reasons. Yeah, but it's a matter of fact that today you cannot operate these systems without some degree of involvement from the data-driven companies or the software companies, the tech companies of Silicon Valley or Seattle or, or Boston. Is that Would that be a, a correct way to say it? I think that's that's true. Um, you need to find companies that are, that are savvy here. Now, mm -hmm. I think that um, we have seen, again, big companies like Microsoft and Amazon um, and, and others say that they want to work with DOD. But even if that w were not the case, 
I think that the DOD is a big enough market that you would see some market differentiation. We've seen companies like Endural stand up and say, like, we're going to work with um, the U.S. government. Or Palantir has done a lot of tech work with the U.S. government over, over the years. So I do think that, um, you know, even if you had big tech companies say, for whatever reason, they don't want to do military work, um, you'd still see other companies step into the mix because Silicon Valley is a pretty fluid place, right? Yeah. And if there's a market... A niche to be filled, somebody's going to step up to fill it. Mm. But it also puts some challenges uh, onto governments, and we're talking a lot about the U.S. government because we're sitting in Washington, D.C., but uh, a few weeks ago I visited uh, NATO's uh, Allied Transformational Command, uh -huh. not too far away from where we're sitting in, in, in Norfolk, Virginia. And, of course, NATO is also struggling with this new scenario where it's not only the traditional uh, you know, producers of weapon systems, you're, you're, you have to have a relationship with the new technology companies. And if we zoom out now, we're talking in a, in a Western context, but if you if you move towards Asia, of course, the big question is the gray zone between what is public and what is private. Is that going to be a game changer enabling, you know, countries like China to get a competitive edge in developing uh, some of these systems and, and therefore, of course, entering into a different kinds of arm, arms race? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, the, to me, the real um, big challenges that um, NATO countries face are in accessing this are a couple things. Um, one is a lack of speed that's comparable to what the private sector is looking for. Um, that, you know, the timelines between what these private tech companies want in terms of getting contracts underway and seeing profits are radically out of step with the pace at which government moves. In many cases, the profit margins aren't there, particularly for um, startups, and they lead to scale startups big. Um, U.S. defense leaders have sometimes talked about small businesses. Well, yeah. no startup wants to stay a small business, right? They want to they be the next uh, unicorn. They want to get huge. And so that's a big challenge. Um, there's a lot of red tape in, in bureaucracies, so that's another big concern is um, just right now we've created an ecosystem where companies have to kind of specialize in working with the defense um, you know, bureaucracy And, and we've built a lot of sort of walls around innovation. We need to find ways to break down. Um, some of these are going to exist um, with other nations, but some of them are not, right? So if you look at China, for example, they have this model of military-civil fusion. It's, it's really an aspiration um, that they want to more tightly integrate their military and civilian sectors. This has created intense anxiety in Washington. Um, Military civil fusion is sort of held up as this this uh, specter of something that we're falling behind on, and I think that there's obviously many ways in which the Chinese government is far more deeply integrated into their economy than is the case uh, in Western countries, where they um, play a much much bigger role. Um, they work more closely with a lot of private sector companies. Um, we've seen them, you know, tout these sort of model of national champions. We certainly don't have anything like that here in the United States. Um, and then it's allowed them to gain a competitive advantage in some areas, in part because they're subsidizing some of these companies. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the kinds of protests that we've seen come out of U.S. tech company employees, like in the case of Project Maven, that doesn't exist in the Chinese space, right? So you're not going to see some Chinese employees sort of writing open letters saying, you know, we don't want to work with the Chinese Communist Party. You do that, you're going to go to jail. So that's, that's not going to happen. Um, On the other hand, um, I think they do have similar challenges of integrating uh, their military and civilian sector. Um, things like 
you know, their defense um, establishment is likely to go to traditional defense companies. They probably have similar challenges in speed of mm-hmm. innovation. Um, and so, you know, they don't necessarily get to bypass all of these hurdles. The last point I'd make is that when you look at the history of military innovation and new technologies, one of the things that I think is pretty clear that jumps out is that the most important thing is actually not having the technology, that often very quickly the technology rapidly proliferates and actually most most countries will have access to it. It's figuring out the best ways of using it. Mm. Think about the early 20th century and a technology like airplanes and tanks, they rapidly proliferated around the globe. And even the fact that the United States invented airplanes had no meaningful advantage 20 years later. By the time you got to World War II, like that, that gave the U.S. no advantage at all. The real challenge was figuring out, what do you do with airplanes? Mm. What do you do with tanks? What's the right way to use these in a way that combines them with military doctrine, with new organizational concepts, with new ways of fighting? Um, and I think that's going to be the real challenge. It's also, I think, an area where NATO countries have a huge advantage. That I think that if we if we focus on out innovating our competitors, I actually think that we can stay ahead um, and find the best ways of using this technology and maintain military advantage on the battlefield. Great, Paul. Let's move a little bit into the international sphere and, and talk a little bit about the discussions between uh, between governments on how you potentially regulate it. Do we need a new a new uh, international treaty that that regulates the use of autonomous weapon systems, or perhaps lethal autonomous autonomous weapon systems? Um, tell us a little bit more about how those discussions are, are going on right now. Yeah. So countries have been um, engaged in discussions at the United Nations at the. Um, rather awkwardly named Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, or the CCW, um, for the last six years now. And I think, first of all, it's worth saying the countries deserve a tremendous amount of credit Mm. of being ahead of this issue. Um, And in fact, discussion started in 2014. So really, even before the current uh, excitement, I dare say maybe maybe a little bit of hype about AI kind of hit the the world, and so that's, you know, I think worth really giving credit where credit's due to nations, to leaning into this and trying to proactively think about the ch- challenges of a new technology before we just build it and put it out there and then afterwards kind of like, oops, you know, mm. maybe we should have done that. Mm. So I think that's, that's wonderful. Um, one of the things that have, of course, been on the table from the beginning is this idea of a treaty that would ban autonomous weapons before they could be built. This is um, what's being pushed by a number of NGOs uh, under the sort of broad umbrella of the campaign to stop killer robots, yep. a consortium of, I don't, know, I don't know what they're up to, maybe 50 or 60 NGOs now. And we've seen you know, open letters from several thousand robotics and AI scientists as well kind of calling for this. Um, and you've had you know, on the order of 20-ish or so countries now come out and say that they support the idea of a treaty but none of these countries are major military powers or leading robotics developers. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit like you know, a group of friends who don't smoke coming together and saying they're going to agree to stop smoking. Um, it's like those aren't, that's not really where the, the issue lies, right? right? It's not the people who are really moving the ball forward in the technology. Um, you know, to my mind, well, first of all, look, if countries want to pass a treaty, they can, they can pass a treaty. Nations have certainly 
uh, over the years uh, found agreement to prohibit some kinds of weapons, uh, biological and chemical weapons, probably most successfully. Mm. Um, there have been many other examples throughout history where people tried to do this, and it didn't work. Um, people often talk about papal decrees banning the crossbow in the Middle Ages that seem to have, uh, as near as we can tell, zero effect on the spread of the crossbow across medieval Europe. But more recently, there were lots of attempts in the early 20th century to regulate submarines and air-delivered weapons that just didn't didn't succeed. Um, it's worth looking at these examples and trying to figure out, like, well, why does some work and why does some not? And mm. what are the right characteristics here? Um, you know, it's also worth pointing out that getting a treaty done is only the first step. What you really want is restraint in warfare. Mm. And we have plenty of examples. The use of poison gas in World War One is a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty clear one where countries had treaties in place, and then they just violated them anyways. So, you know, a piece of paper doesn't really constrain uh, a nation in wartime, mm. um, or even in peacetime. Um, most more recently, we just saw Russia cheating on the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, mm. which led to the U.S. pulling out. So um, how do you get to a condition of agreement among countries, regardless of what color piece of paper they write it down on, about what is the right path forward? Mm. And I think that we've seen the UN discussions in the past few years shift in this direction where there's less of a focus on, you know, is there a treaty or not, which is, I think, a little bit putting the cart before the horse, and instead saying, what is right look like? What role do we want humans to play in war? What role should machines be playing? What's the right way to use automation? Mm -hmm. And how can we use automation in a way that might make warfare more precise and more humane but doesn't lose our humanity in the process. Mm. That doesn't give up some essential element of human involvement. Mm. Um, and I think we've seen actually the dialogue at the CCW increasingly focus on this issue of human involvement, human judgment, human control. It's kind of phrased in different ways. Mm. Um, but I think that's the right place to focus attention. Instead of saying, you know, should we ban this or not? To me, a more interesting question to ask is, if we had all the technology in the world what role would we want humans to play in war mm. and why? Let's uh, make it even more detailed. So what countries are pushing for this uh, new treaty to ban, uh, let's call it killer robots or autonomous weapon systems? And, and what countries are very skeptical or very quiet around this agenda? Yeah, so you've seen a broadly um, countries dividing into kind of three camps, if you will. Um, one is countries uh, pushing for a ban. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's interesting is when you look at the countries on the list, while the, the NGOs who are pushing for a ban are clearly motivated by humanitarian reasons, um, the list of the countries on the ban is not necessarily a standout in terms of human rights, right? It's like Zimbabwe and countries that like, don't necessarily jump out at you as like real, um, real leaders in human rights. It really looks like it's motivated perhaps not surprisingly, by much more um, uh, political goals. That for many of these countries, you know, they might not know what an autonomous weapon is, but they know that they're not the ones building it. So they're like, yeah, let's ban it. Mm. Um, on the far end of the spectrum, you've seen um, a handful of countries say, look, we don't need any new law. We have these things called the laws of war, and they work just fine. Thank you very much. And all of the things that people are concerned about, you know, can really be addressed with the laws of war. If you're worried about robots running amok and murdering civilians, well, 
the laws of war say you can't do that. And so um, we have adequate protections in place. We just need to focus on actually adhering to these protections, ensuring operability to do so. I'd say the two most vocal proponents of sticking with the laws of war in place have been the United States and Russia. Mm. They tend to come at this um, a little bit differently in terms of tone, I think. Um, but, but they both you know, pretty clearly said we need to focus on the laws of war as they exist. And there's, there's been some middle ground, I think led primarily by France and Germany, kind of saying, well, maybe we could have like a non-legally binding kind of political declaration that might express some, some views, searching mm-hmm. for some, some middle ground there. So I think it remains to be seen where this will go. Um, it's possible that the number of countries who support a ban reaches some critical mass and we won't see a ban in the CCW because it's a consensus-based forum, so mm. everyone has to agree, and that's just not going to happen. Um, but it's possible you see a critical mass of countries that then moves out of the CCW and creates a standalone treaty like we saw for landmines and cluster munitions. I'd say we're probably not there yet. Mm. Um, we have yet to see, you know, a a um, you know really a, a Western democratic country stand up and kind of take a leadership role there mm-hmm. the way that Canada and Norway did for landmines and cluster munitions. And actually, let's stay on the landmines for a second because that's exactly the question I wanted to ask you that, you know, 30 years ago, I think very few people would, would imagine that you would have a ban on personal landmines. Um, today we have it. Uh, there is a more imperative around that. But of course, it's something you either have it or you don't. Yes. And I just want to test the, the conceptual aspect of, the, of of what we're discussing and the fact that it's not a, a either or uh, the autonomy of these weapon systems. It's it's more sort of Iron Man augmenting uh, you know human yeah. beings rather yeah. than Terminator, where you have fully autonomous uh, systems. Is that part of the problem? That how you how how do you actually define what you ban, um, and um, you know what what are killer robots uh, de facto? That, that is probably the biggest um, and most, you know, sort of the first obstacle to making progress on this. Because we can all agree in concept what a landmine is. And if you want to distinguish between maybe anti-personnel and anti-material, maybe we could start, you know, talking about weight and configuration or something. But the concept You, you would probably clear. lose most of the audience if we did that, so let's not we won't, do we won't. We won't do that. We won't subject people to that. But, but the point is, like, um, the concept is pretty simple. The problem is that, you know, automation is a lot more like electricity. It's in everything. And so drawing these clear distinctions is much, much harder for this kind of technology. Where do you draw the line between you know, a missile, a fire-and-forget missile today and an autonomous weapon? Again, conceptually, as we started out the conversation, it's, the distinction is, is clear. But when you start to look at the technical details, it's quite fuzzy. And we've seen for some technologies, militaries have created these Nation states can create these treaties that get highly technical. If you look at the um, Cluster Munitions Convention, it has these very technical definitions of what really constitutes a cluster munition and what doesn't. That only works when the technology is solidified, when it already exists. When it's still developing, it's hard to do that because even if countries weren't motivated by politics, and of course they are, but even if they weren't, you don't even know where to draw the line because the technology is continually evolving. Mm-hmm. And that's a real challenge for this issue. But in your book, you also make a point which is almost provocative. You're saying that to some extent, if you attack this from a human rights point of view, 
you might actually want more autonomy in weapon systems because it's a it's a cleaner battle, it's a cleaner fight, and you might avoid sort of casualties uh, in a, in a broader sense. Does that hold water, that argument, or are you just saying it to uh, to get attention around your new book? <laughs> yeah, no, so it's an argument, first of all, it's an argument that's out there, right? So in the book, I I try to work hard to present all of the arguments on all the sides, not all of which I, I would agree with. Um, but there is both, there's sort of a, a, a real politic argument for autonomous weapons, which is good or bad, they're going to happen, people are going to build them, and so we should build them before the other folks. Mm. That, that, that argument's out there, too. But there is a humanitarian case for them that you hear people make, which is basically that, look, humans aren't perfect. Humans make mistakes. Humans commit war crimes. And just the same way that self-driving cars might someday save lives on the road by having fewer accidents, mm. maybe autonomous weapons could do the same in war. And that doesn't you know, it's not as crazy as it sounds. We have seen over the past several decades the introduction of precision-guided munitions into warfare. And what we've seen as a result is a huge reduction in actually civilian casualties in war. Mm. Where we've moved from an era where, you know, in, in, in World War II, whole cities were demolished through aerial bombardment in Europe and Asia. Um, and it just incredible destruction, in part because bombing was really imprecise. Um, there was, just wasn't a good way to precisely bomb a bridge or a factory. Now, advanced militaries can put a bomb exactly where they want to put it, to the point where you've seen organizations like Human Rights Watch actually argue that it should be a war crime to use unguided weapons in urban areas, right? That, that really is a case for more technological advancement and more achievement and more um, precision to avoid civilian harm. Now, that's not why militaries develop precision-guided weapons. They develop them because they want to hit the enemy targets. But the side effect has been that by being able to more precisely target the enemy, they're avoiding collateral damage or not as much collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the argument really goes, well, maybe autonomous weapons could be the next evolution in that. And I think the answer is that's probably right if the weapons work the way they're supposed to, right? If people use them the way they're supposed to, if there aren't accidents, um, if countries really are trying to pursue, you know, operating in compliance with the laws of war. And that's one of the underlying challenges behind this conversation is that, of course, countries care, you know, very differently about complying with the laws of war. You have some nations that really work very, very hard to operate in a manner that avoids civilian casualties. And then you have people like Bashar al-Assad that are intentionally murdering civilians. Um, and so that's one of the, the hurdles here is we have to acknowledge that there will always be rogue actors, there will always be uh, terrorists and murderers that will use any weapons, these or other ones, in ways that are really abhorrent. And we have to sort of account for that in how we think about the future. Hmm. But no matter how you approach this, uh, I, th- I guess your argument is that it, it's coming to a theater near you very soon and that this will be part of the, the global arms race as well. I'm just wondering, we talk a lot about in, in my team about the digital divide, the fact that some countries might be fragile today, they might be even more fragile tomorrow because they don't have access to skills and competences or infrastructure. You know, what we're talking about here, is, is that going to have a major impact also in say, the balance of power, because some countries will have access to the latest military equipment. I guess that's always been the case. But but this is a game changer moving your warfare into a completely different area compared to where it is today. 
Yeah. So I think you can you can think of technologies along a spectrum between those that concentrate power, that sort of make the powerful more powerful and increase that divide, and those that tend to diffuse power, where there's lower barriers to entry. So on the really extreme side of concentrating power would be nuclear weapons. Very hard to build. They really exacerbate the divide between those who have and, and have not. On the other end of the spectrum, you might have something like an AK-47. Cheap, easy to mass produce, arm the masses, or smartphones, right? Very empowering to, to individuals. Um, I tend to think of AI and automation as much more empowering to a broader set of, of actors, both state and non-state groups, and even individuals. Because there's often an assumption in conversations around autonomous weapons that this will increase the divide between more advanced nations and those that are not. In fact, when you look at the set of countries that are opposed to autonomous weapons, that seems to be the main driver. But I'm not sure that's actually true. Um, it seems to me that you know when you look at automation and software in general, um, it's you know, basically costless to copy, easy to replicate, travels around the world very, very quickly, um, maybe hard to initially create, but easy for others to repurpose and reuse. We've seen, for example, the code from Stuxnet, the, the advanced cyber weapon, yeah. be repurposed in other malware since then, right? And so if you get a hold of something like, you know, an F-35 fighter jet, say it crashes into your territory, you can't take that and then like rebuild a thousand F-35s by yourself. That's really hard to do. There's a lot of precision manufacturing and materials and things that go into that. Um, but the software, that you can take and reuse. There's, there's human capital needed, but there are lower barriers to entry. You can go online, you can download trained neural networks um, you know, from open source repositories like GitHub or TensorFlow. So in general, I think that this technology is likely to over time be widely used, just like we see with drones today. Drones you know, maybe for a very, very brief period of time, a few years, we're only in a handful of, you know, only in the hands of a small number of advanced countries. Mm. But then very rapidly they proliferate. Yeah. And anybody has access to drones. You know, any individual can buy a drone for a few hundred bucks. Yep. And, um, and they could put a weapon on it, actually, um, which, which is kind of scary. So I think we're going to see autonomy in the same respect be much more leveling and and, uh, and more diffuse of a technology that is available to a whole wide range of actors. Well, we're coming towards the end of the pod and we could continue this discussion for a long time. But, um, you know, I, I, I grew up reading a little bit of science fiction, but not enough, I realized. But, but isn't the problem here that we are violating the famous law of Isaac Asimov and yes. the fact that you know robots <laughs> should not harm people. Isn't, isn't that the, 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 the problem? If we go back to his law, yes. everything would be fine. Yeah. So um, Asimov's laws of robotics, right, are a great, uh, a great, I think, touch point for this conversation because Asimov, you know, foresaw this challenge of more advanced robotics and said, well, we need to put these rules in place to govern their behavior. And, uh, and he the, did so in such an elegant and precise way, by the way. Right. And of course, like his stories are all about how people actually the laws aren't good enough and, and there's all these like little loopholes. But the laws probably get you like 90% of the way there. And um, the first, you know, law I'm paraphrasing is that a robot, you know, cannot, cannot injure a person. Well, obviously, in the military context, that's just right out the window. Um, so that's not going to work. So I think in some ways what we are looking for are lethal laws of robotics, 
Right? What are the rule sets for how military should operate this technology? If you know, don't harm people is just not, that's not going to be the case. That's what militaries are there to do is to engage in combat operations. Then what should the rule set be for how they employ this technology? Um, I think we don't quite know yet. But it's encouraging the countries are coming together. We're having this conversation. It's one that is, you know, it's, it's a very um, open and inclusive dialogue that's going on. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, 100 or so odd countries coming together, big countries, small countries, democratic ones, authoritarian ones at the UN, but also NGOs participating, yeah. scientists and engineers, the public writ large, you know, really engage in this dialogue as it uh, engages in the broader media space. Um, you know, and, and even though, you know, a lot of the media articles, you know, are often a little bit sensational, right? You get the, you get the, the Terminator picture in the media uh, headline. Um, I do think it's, it's right that this is a very inclusive discussion mm-hmm. that includes the broader society because even though it's a small subset of people who will be building this technology, at the end of the day, we all have to live in the world, uh, that, that these these weapon systems are going to populate. Right. And we all have a stake in what the outcome is. Paul, the last question is always the same one, which is, what is the question I should have asked you and what is the answer to that one? Oh, wow, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, so we didn't talk about cyberspace and autonomous systems, and that's probably worth a whole other podcast, but, um, but that is in some ways the trickiest element of this. Um, and so you have a couple dimensions of it. One is... Wow, when you start thinking about cybersecurity for autonomous weapons, that probably changes your risk calculus a little bit. Um, you know, there's no reason to think that autonomous weapons would be more likely to be hacked than any other digital system. People have, you know, can hack your phone or computer or your car uh, well, these they days. They are doing that already. <laughs> and they are, they, are doing, they are doing those things, yeah. of course. Um, but the real risk here is that you know, the consequences of someone hacking in could be much more profound uh, because now you've concentrated lethality in a system. So if you were to hack you know, a missile, for example, well, that's only one missile. Um, if you hacked all the missiles, you have to steer them all or, you know. With an autonomous weapon, you could cause a lot more destruction. Yeah. Um, you know, if you programmed in a line of code to, you know, change, you know, the indicators for enemy forces to friendly forces, that that might have some real negative consequences. So that's a real challenge. But the other really interesting angle here is more advanced automation in cyberspace, which we are seeing, of course. We're seeing malware incorporate more automation, um, more, you know, intelligence of of some very limited forms. Um, And that poses some real challenges in cybersecurity directly as we see more advanced forms of malware uh, in the coming years. Paul, it, it was a pleasure. It was a very interesting discussion. Thanks for, for sharing your views and also sharing some of the insight from your book, uh, Army of None, which again is very recommendable. I look forward to continuing the, the, the dialogue with you. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was another episode of Techplomacy Talk, researched and developed by the Office of Denmark's Tech Ambassador in Silicon Valley, Copenhagen, and Beijing. My name is Sven Peter Knudsen, and I'm the one doing the editing to bring you this month's episode. 
Now, if you like what you just heard, please share it with someone you know, and don't forget to subscribe or leave a review on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Finally, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests, please reach out on Twitter or go to our website techamb.um.dk for more information. Thank you.